Meet the One for All card. Perfect for Aunt Edith, your dog walker, and even what's-his-name. With over 100 great brands and no fees, it's the one gift for all. Available in stores and at giftcards.com. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. Our book is Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. Chapter 27. Dr. Arkengarth Remembers. Catherine spent a lot of time in the museum in those final days, as London went roaring towards the mountains. Safe in its dingy maze, she could not hear the burr of the saws as they felled the last few trees in Circle Park to feed the engines, or the cheers of the noisy crowds who gathered each day in front of the public goggle screens where the details of Croom's great plan were being gradually revealed. She could even forget the Guild of Engineers' security people who were everywhere now, not just the usual white-coated thugs, but a strange new breed in black coats and hoods, silent, stiff in their movements, with a faint greenish glow behind their tinted visors, Dr Twix's resurrected men. But if she was honest with herself, it wasn't only the peace and quiet that kept calling her down to the museum. Beavis was there, his borrowed bedding spread out on the floor of the old transport gallery, under the dusty hanging shapes of model gliders and flying machines. She needed his company more and more as the city hauled itself eastward, She liked the fact that he was her secret. She liked his soft voice and the strange laugh that always sounded as if he were trying it on for size, as if he had never had much call for laughter down in the deep gut. She liked the way he looked at her, his dark eyes always lingering on her face and especially her hair. I've never really known anybody with hair before, he told her one day. In the Guild, they used chemicals on us when we're first apprenticed, so it never grows back. Catherine thought about his pale, smooth scalp. She liked that too. It sort of suited him. Was this what falling in love was like? Not something big and amazing that you knew about straight away, like in a story, but a slow thing that crept over you in waves until you woke up one day and found that you were head over heels with someone quite unexpected, like an apprentice engineer. She wished that father was here so that she could ask him. In the afternoons, Beavis would pull on a historian's robe and hide his bald head under a cap and go down to help Dr Nan Caro, who was busy recataloguing the museum's huge store of paintings and drawings and taking photographs in case the Lord Mayor decided to feed those to the furnaces as well. Then Catherine would wander the museum with dog at her heels, hunting for the things that her father had dug up. Washing machines, pieces of computer, the rusty ribcage of a stalker, all had labels which read, Discovered by Mr T. Valentine, archaeologist. She could imagine him lifting them gently out of the soil that had guarded them, cleaning them, wrapping them in scrim for transport back to London. He must have done the same thing with the Medusa fragment when he discovered it, she thought. She whispered prayers to Cleo, sure that the goddess must be present in these time-soaked halls. London needs him. I need him. Please send him safely home and soon... But it was Dog, not Cleo, who led her into the natural history section that evening. He had glimpsed a display of stuffed animals from the far end of the corridor and gone prowling down to stare at them, a growl bubbling in the back of his throat. 
old Dr Arkengarth, who was passing through the gallery on his way home, backed away nervously, but Kate said, "'It's all right, Doctor, he's quite safe,' and knelt down at Dog's side, looking up at the sharks and dolphins that swung above her and the great looming shape of the whale, which had been taken off its hawsers and propped against the far wall before the vibrations could bring it down. "'Impressive, isn't it?' said Arkengarth, who was always ready to begin a lecture. A blue whale, hunted to extinction in the first half of the 21st century, or possibly the 20th. The records are unclear. We wouldn't even know what it looked like if Mrs Shaw hadn't discovered those fossilised bones. Catherine had been thinking about something else, but the name Shaw made her look round. The display case Arkengarth was pointing at housed a rack of brownish bones, and propped against a vertebra, was a label that said, Bones of a Blue Whale, discovered by Mrs P. Shaw, freelance archaeologist. Pandora Shaw, thought Catherine, recalling the name she had seen in the museum catalogue. Not Hester, of course not. But just to get Dr Arkengarth out of lecture mode, she said, Did you know her, Pandora Shaw? Mrs Shaw, yes, yes, the old man nodded. A lovely lady. She was an out-country archaeologist, a friend of your father's. Of course, her name was Ray in those days. Pandora Ray. Catherine knew that name. Then she was father's assistant on the trip to America. I've seen her picture in his book. That's right, said Dr Arkengolf, frowning slightly at the interruption. An archaeologist, as I said. She specialised in old tech, of course, but she brought us other things when she found them, like these whale bones. Later, she married this shore chappy and went to live on some grotty little island in the Western Ocean. Poor girl. A tragedy. Terrible, terrible. She died, didn't she? said Catherine. She was murdered. Arkengarth waggled his eyebrows dramatically. Six or seven years ago, we heard it from another archaeologist, murdered in her own home and her husband with her. Dreadful business. I say, my dear, are you all right? You look as if you've seen a ghost. But Catherine was not all right. In her mind, all the pieces of the puzzle were flying together. Pandora Shaw was murdered seven years ago, the same time that father found the machine. Pandora the aviatrix, the archaeologist, the woman who had been with him in America when he found the plans of Medusa. And now a girl called Shaw who wants to kill father? She could hardly manage to force the words out, but at last she asked, Did she have a child? I think she did, I, I think she did, the old man mused. Yes, I remember Mrs Shaw showing me a picture once, when she turned up with some ceramics from my department. Lovely pieces, a decorated vase from the Electric Empire era, best of its kind in the collection. Do you remember its name? Ah, yes, let me see. Uh, EE27190, I believe. Not the vase, the baby! Catherine's impatient shout echoed through the gallery and out into the halls beyond, and Dr Arkengarth looked first startled, then offended. Well, really, Miss Valentine, there's no need to snap. How should I remember the child's name? It was 15, 16 years ago, and I've never liked babies. Nasty creatures leak at both ends and have no respect for ceramics. But I believe this particular one was called Hattie or Holly or... Hester, sobbed Catherine, and turned and ran. Ran with Dog at her heels. Ran and ran without knowing where or why, since there was no way that she could outrun the dreadful truth. She knew how Father had come by the key to Medusa, and why he had never spoken of it. 
At last she knew why poor Hester Shaw had wanted to kill him. Chapter 28. A Stranger in the Mountains of Heaven Valentine's hand drew subtle, complicated shapes in the air above the girl's bowed head, and her face was calm and smiling, little suspecting that she was being blessed by the League's worst enemy. Tom watched from behind a shrine to the Sky Goddess. His eyes had known who the red-robed monk was all along, and now his brain caught up with them in a flurry of understandings. Captain Cora had said that the 13th floor elevator had been haunting the mountains. It must have dropped Valentine off in the crags near Batmunk Gomper, and he had come the rest of the way on foot, creeping into the city like a thief. But why? What secret mission could have brought him here? Tom didn't know what to feel. He was frightened, of course, to be so close to the man who had tried to murder him, but at the same time he was thrilled by Valentine's daring. What courage it must have taken to sneak into the great stronghold of the League under the very noses of London's enemies. It was the sort of adventure that Valentine had written about in books that Tom had read again and again, huddled under the blankets in the third-class apprentice's dorm with a torch long after lights out. Valentine finished his blessing and moved on. For a few moments Tom lost sight of him among the crowds in the square, but then he spotted the red robe climbing on up the broad central stairway. He followed at a safe distance, past beggars and guards and hot food vendors, none of whom guessed that the red-robed figure was anything more than one of those crazy holy men. Valentine had his head bowed now, and he climbed quickly, so Tom did not feel any danger as he hurried along twenty or thirty paces behind. But he still didn't know what he should do. Hester deserved to know that her parents' murderer was here. Should he find her, tell her? But Valentine was some, on some important mission for London, maybe gathering information so that the engineers would know exactly where to aim Medusa. If Hester killed him, Tom would have betrayed his whole city. He climbed onward, ignoring the pain of his broken ribs. Around him, the terraces of Batmunk Gomper were speckled with lamps and lanterns, and the envelopes of balloon taxis glowed from within as they rose and fell, like strange sea creatures swimming around a coral reef. And slowly he realised that he didn't want Valentine to succeed in whatever he was planning. London was no better than Tunbridge Wheels, and this place was old and beautiful. He wouldn't let it be smashed. It's Valentine! he shouted, charging up the stairs, trying to warn the passers-by of the danger. But they just stared at him without understanding, and when at last he reached the red-robed man and pulled his hood down, he found the round, startled face of a pilgrim monk blinking back at him. He looked around wildly and saw what had happened. Valentine had taken a different stairway out of the central square, leaving Tom following the wrong red robe. He went running down again. Valentine was barely visible, a red speck climbing through lantern light towards the high places of the city and the eerie of the great air destroyers. "'It's Valentine!' shouted Tom, pointing. But none of the people around him spoke English. Some thought he was mad. Others thought that he meant Medusa was about to strike." A wave of panic spread across the square, and soon he heard warning gongs sounding in the densely packed terraces of shops and inns below. His first thought was to find Hester, but he had no idea where to look. Then he ran to a balloon taxi and told the pilot, Follow that monk! But the woman smiled and shook her head, not understanding. Feng Hua! Tom shouted, remembering Anna Fang's league name, and the taxi pilot nodded and smiled, casting off. 
He tried to calm himself as the balloon rose. He would find Miss Fang. Miss Fang would know what to do. He remembered how she had trusted him with the Jenny during the flight across the mountains and felt ashamed for turning on her in the council meeting. He was expecting to take the the taxi to take him to the governor's palace, but instead it landed near the terrace where the Jenny Hanover was birthed. The pilot pointed towards an inn which clung to the underside of the terrace above like a house martin's nest. Feng Hua, she said helpfully, Feng Hua. For a panic-stricken moment, Tom thought that she had carried him to an inn with the same name as Miss Fang. Then, on one of the establishment's many balconies, he caught sight of the aviatrix's blood-red coat. He thrust all the money he had at the pilot, shouting, Keep the change! and left her staring at the unfamiliar faces of Quirk and Croom as he raced away. Miss Fang was sitting at a balcony table with Captain Cora and the stern young Corallan flyer who had been so angry at Tom's outburst earlier. They were drinking tea and deep in discussion, but they all leapt up as Tom blundered out onto the balcony. Where's Hester? he demanded. Down on the mooring platforms, in one of her moods, said Miss Fang. Why? Valentine, he gasped. He's here, dressed as a monk. The inn's musicians stopped playing and the sounds of the alarm gongs in the lower city came drifting through the open windows. Valentine, here, sneered the Corallan girl. It's a lie. The barbarian thinks he can frighten us. Be quiet, Sathya. Miss Fang reached across and gripped Tom by the arm. Is he alone? As quickly as he could, Tom told her what he had seen. She made a hissing sound through her clenched teeth. He has come after our air fleet. He means to cripple us. One man cannot destroy an air fleet, protested Cora, smiling at the notion. You've never seen Valentine at work, said the aviatrix. She was already on her feet, excited at the prospect of crossing swords with London's greatest agent. Sathya, go and rouse the guard. Tell them the High Eries are in danger. She turned to Tom. Thank you for warning us, she said gently, as if she understood the agonising decision he had to make. I've got to tell Hester, he protested. Certainly not, she told him. She will only get herself killed or kill Valentine, and I want him kept alive for questioning. Stay here until it is all over. A last ferocious smile and she was gone, down the steps and out of the panicked inn with Cora at her heels. She looked grim and dangerous and very beautiful, and Tom felt himself brushed by the same fierce love which he knew Cora and the Corallan girl and the rest of the League must feel for her. But then he thought of Hester and what she would say when she learned that he had seen Valentine and hadn't even told her. Great quirk, he shouted suddenly. I'm going to find her. Safia just stared at him, not stern any more, just frightened and very young. And as he ran towards the stairs, he shouted back at her. You heard what Miss Fang said. Raise the alarm. Out onto dark ladderways again, down to the mooring flat platform where the Jenny Hanover hung at anchor. Hester, Hester, he shouted. And there she was, coming towards him through the glow of the landing lights, tugging the red shawl up across her face. He told her everything, and she took the news with the cold, silent glare he had expected. Then it was her turn to run, and he was following her up the endless stairs. The wall made its own weather. As Tom and Hester neared the top, the air grew thin and chill, and big fluttering snowflakes brushed their faces like butterfly wings. 
they could see lantern light on a broad platform ahead where a gas tanker was lifting away empty from the high eries. Then there was an unbelievable gout of flame shooting out of the face of the wall, and another, and another, as if it were dragons, not airships, that were stabled there. Caught in the blast, the tanker's envelope exploded, white parachutes blossoming around it as it began to fall. Hester stopped for a moment and looked back, flames shining in her eye. He's done it! We're too late! He's fired their air fleet! They ran on. Tom's ribs hurt him at every breath, and the cold air scorched his throat, but he kept as close behind Hester as he could, crunching through snow along a narrow walkway to the platform outside the Eries. The bronze gates stood open, and a crowd of men were pouring out, shielding their faces from the heat of the blaze within. Some of them were dragging wounded comrades, and near the main door Tom saw Cora being tended to by two of the ground crew. The aviator looked up as Tom and Hester ran to him. Valentine, he groaned. He bluffed his way past the sentries, saying he wanted to bless our airships. He was setting his explosives when Anna and I arrived. Oh, Tom, we never imagined that even a barbarian would try something like this. We weren't prepared. Our whole air fleet. My poor Mokele Mbembe. He broke off, coughing blood. Valentine's sword had pierced his lung. "'What about Miss Fang?' asked Tom. "'Cora shook his head. He did not know. "'Hester was already stalking away into the searing heat of the hangars, "'ignoring the men who tried to call her back. "'Tom ran after her. "'It was like running into an oven. "'He had an impression of a huge cavern, "'with smaller caverns opening off it, "'the hangars where the League's warships were housed. "'Valentine must have gone quickly from one ship to the next, "'placing phosphorus bombs.' Now only their buckling ribs were visible in the white-hot heart of the blaze. "'Hester!' shouted Tom, his voice lost in the roar of the flames, and saw her a little way ahead of him, hurrying down a narrow tunnel that led deeper into the wall. "'I'm not following her in there,' he thought. "'If she wants to get herself trapped and roasted, that's her lookout.' But as he turned back towards the safety of the platform, the ammunition in the gondolas of the burning airships caught, and suddenly there were rockets and bullets flying everywhere, bursting against the stone walls and howling through the air around him. The tunnel was closer than the main entrance, and he scrambled into it, whispering prayers to all the gods he could think of. Fresh air was coming from somewhere in front of him, and he realised that the passage must lead right through the wall to one of the gun emplacements on the western face. "'Hester!' he shouted. Only echoes replied, muddled with the echoing roar of the fires in the hangar. He pressed on. At a fork in the tunnel lay a huddled shape, a young airman cut down by Valentine's sword. Tom breathed a sigh of relief that it was not Hester or Miss Fang, and then felt guilty because the poor man was dead. He studied the branching tunnel. "'Which way should he go?' "'Hester!' he shouted nervously. "'Echoes!' A stray bullet from the hangar came whining past and struck sparks off the stonework by his head. Choosing quickly, he ducked down the right-hand passage. There was another sound now, closer and sharper than the dull roar of the fires, a thin, bird-like sound of metal on metal. Tom hurried down a slippery flight of stairs, saw light ahead and ran towards it. He emerged into the cold and the fluttering snow on a broad platform where a rocket battery gazed out towards the west. 
Flames flapped and tore in an iron brazier, lighting the ancient battlements, the sprawled bodies of the rocket crew and the wild shimmer of swords as Valentine and Miss Fang battled each other back and forth across the scrabbled snow. Tom crouched in the shadows of the tunnel's mouth, clutching his aching ribs and staring. Valentine was fighting magnificently. He had torn off his monk's robes to reveal a white shirt, black breeches, long black boots, and he parried and thrust and ducked gracefully under the aviatrix's blows. But Tom could see that he had met his match. Holding her long sword two-handed, Miss Fang drove him back towards the rocket battery and the bodies of the men he had killed, anticipating every blow he had made, fainting and swinging, jumping into the air to avoid a low backstroke, until at last she smashed the sword from his hand. He went down on his knees to reach for it, but her blade was already at his throat and Tom saw a dark rill of blood start down to stain the collar of his shirt. Well done he said, and smiled the smile that Tom remembered from that night in the gut, a kind, amused, utterly sincere smile. Well done, Feng Hua. Quiet, she snapped. This isn't a game. Valentine laughed. On the contrary, my dear Windflower, it's the greatest game of all, and my team appears to be winning. Haven't you noticed that your air fleet is on fire? You really should have tightened up your security arrangement. I suppose because the League has had things its own way for a thousand years. You think you can rest on your laurels. But the world is changing. He's playing for time, thought Tom, but he could not see why. Cornered on this high platform, unarmed, with no chance of escape, what did Valentine hope to gain by taunting the aviatrix? He wondered if he should go forward and pick up the fallen sword and stand by Miss Fang until help arrived. But there was something so powerful and dangerous about Valentine, even in defeat, that he dared not show himself. He listened, hoping to catch the sounds of soldiers coming down the tunnel and wondering what had become of Hester. All he could hear was the distant clamour of gongs and firebells from the far side of the wall and Valentine's flirtatious, half-mocking voice. "'You should come and work for London, my dear. After all, this time tomorrow the shield wall will be rubble.' You will need a new employer. Your league is finished. And light burst down from above, the harsh beam of an airship's searchlight raking across the snow. The aviatrix reeled blindly backwards and Valentine leapt up, snatching his sword, pulling her hard against him as he drove it home. For a moment the two of them stumbled together like drunken dancers at the end of a party, close enough to Tom's hiding place for him to see the bright blade push out through the back of Miss Fang's neck and hear her desperate, choking whisper. Hester Shaw will find you. She will find you and... Then Valentine, leaping up onto the battlements as the 13th floor elevator came looming down out of the searchlight's glare. Chapter 29. Going Home The black airship had been drifting in silence, riding the wind to this high rendezvous, while the defenders of Batmunk Gompa were busy with fires and explosions. Now her engines burst into life, churning the drifting snowflakes and drowning out Tom's cry of horror. Valentine walked out along the barrel of a rocket launcher as nimbly as an athlete on a bar and sprang, spread-eagling himself for an instant on the naked air before his hands found the rope ladder that Pusey and Gench had lowered for him. 
Catching it, he swung himself up into the gondola. Tom ran forward and was plunged into sudden darkness as the searchlight snapped off. Rockets from higher batteries came sparkling down to burst against the elevator's thick hide. One shattered some glass in the gondola, but the black airship was already powering away from the wall. The backwash from its propellers slammed into Tom's face as he knelt over Anna Fang, shaking her in the dim hope that she might wake. "'It's not fair,' he sobbed. "'He waited until you were dazzled. You beat him!' The aviatrix said nothing, but stared past him with a look of stupid surprise, her eyes as dull as dry pebbles." Tom sat down beside her in the reddening snow and tried to think. He supposed he would have to leave Batmunt Gompa now, get out fast before London came, but the very thought of moving on again made him weary. He was sick of being swept to and fro across the world by other people's plans. A thin, hot anger started rising in him as he thought about Valentine, flying home to a hero's welcome. Valentine was the cause of all this. It was Valentine who had ruined his life and Hester's and put an end to so many more. It was Valentine who had given the Guild of Engineers Medusa. Hester had been right. He should have let her kill him when she had the chance. There was a noise at the far end of the platform and he looked up and saw a black mass of arms and legs and coat hurriedly untangling itself like a big spider fallen from the ceiling. It was Hester who had taken the wrong turning as she raced after Valentine and come out in an observation bunker high above. Now here she was, having scrambled down thirty feet of snowy wall and dropped the final ten. Her eye rested for a moment on the fallen aviatrix, Then she turned and went to the battlements and stared out at the dark and the dancing snow. It should have been me, Tom heard her say. At least I would have made sure I took him with me. Tom watched her. He felt tight and sick and trembly from the grief and rage inside him and knew that this was how Hester must feel, how she had always felt, ever since Valentine killed her parents. It was a terrible feeling and he could think of only one way to cure it. He groped under the collar of Anna's coat and found the key on its thong and wrenched it free. Then he stood up and went to where Hester was and put his arms around her. It was like hugging a statue. She was so stiff and tense, but he needed to hold on to something, so he hugged her anyway. Guns were still firing overhead in the vain hope of hitting the 13th floor elevator. He put his face close to Hester's ear and shouted over the noise, "'Let's go home!' She looked round at that, puzzled and a little annoyed. "'Have you gone funny?' "'Don't you see?' he shouted, laughing at the crazy idea that had just come creeping into his mind. "'Someone's got to make him pay. You were right. I shouldn't have stopped you before, but I'm glad I did, because the gut police would have killed you and then we'd never have met. Now I can help you get to him and help you get away afterwards. We'll go back to London. Now, together.' "'You have gone funny.' said Hester, but she came with him anyway, helping him find a way back through the shield wall while soldiers came running past them, frightened, soot-stained and far too late, crying out in woe when they saw the bodies on the rocket platform. The night sky over Batmunk Gompa was full of smoke and tatters of singed envelope fabric. Fires were still burning in the high eyries, but already the roads in the valley were clogged with constellations of small lights, the lanterns of refugees spilling away into the mountains like water bursting from a breached dam. With the death of the air fleet, the shield wall was finished, 
and its people were fleeing as fast as their feet and mules and ox carts and freight balloons could take them. Down at the mooring platform, ships were already lifting into the smoky sky and turning south. The Keralan girl, Sathya, was trying to rally some panic-stricken soldiers, sobbing, Stay and hold the wall! The southern air fleet will reinforce us! They can be here in less than a week! But everyone knew that Batmunk Gompa would be gone by then, and London would be pushing south towards the League's heartlands. Stay and hold the wall, she begged, but the airships kept lifting past her, lifting past her. The Jenny Hanover still hung at anchor, silent, dark. The key that Tom had taken from Anna Fang's body fitted snugly into the lock on the forward hatch, and soon he was standing on the flight deck, staring at the controls. There were far more of them than he remembered. Are you sure we can do this? asked Hester softly. Of course, said Tom. He tried a few switches. The hatch sprang open again. The cabin lights came on. The coffee machine started making a noise like a polite dog clearing its throat, and a small inflatable dinghy dropped from the roof and knocked him over. Quite sure? she asked, helping him up. Tom nodded. I used to build model airships when I was little, so I understand the principle. And Miss Fang showed me the controls when we were in the mountains. I just wish she'd labelled everything in English. He thought for a moment, then hauled on another lever, and this time the engines throbbed into life. Out on the mooring platform people turned to stare, and some made the sign against evil. They had heard of Fenghua's death and wondered if it was her restless ghost aboard the Jenny Hanover. But Sathya saw Tom and Hester standing at the controls and came running towards them. Frightened that she would stop him taking off, Tom hunted for the lever which moved the engine pods. Bearings grated as they swivelled into take-off position. He laughed, delighted at the way the airship responded to the touch of his hands on the controls, hearing the familiar creak and huff of the gas valves somewhere overhead and the clang of the mooring clamps disengaging. People waved their arms and shouted, and Sathya pulled out a gun, but at the last moment Captain Cora came stumbling out onto the platform, supported by one of his crewmen, and gently took it from her. He looked up at Tom, raising a hand to wish him luck, and the surprising pinkness of his palm and fingertips was what stuck in Tom's mind as the airship swayed uncertainly up into the sky and climbed through the smoke from the high eeries. He took one last look down at Batmunk Gompa, then swung her out over the shield wall and turned her nose towards the west. He was going home. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 